Okay, I'm looking at the recording file size, and its number is going up, so God help us, this should actually record. <laughs> I don't want to do it a third time. Who is that? Jazz. Bastard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to preface this saying that we lost the original and this is a redo because I think, yeah, it, it to explain the kind of awkwardness or the strange, I don't know, <laughs> mood here. Yes. All right. Well, are we going to remember all of our jokes? I think, uh, I think uh, let's see. I have to start out with the, uh, uh, we're going to call this the special get the butter edition. <laughs> yeah, I figured that was a magic phrase that would bring us back into the right mindset. Get the butter. <laughs> So, <laughs> I'm sorry. So this is Jazz Bastard Podcast 93, and this is our first redo. I completely failed to capture the audio from our first try at this special celebration of Gato Barbieri. Whoa! So at least doing it more than once allows you to work on your pronunciation. Well done. Yeah, let me uh, give you a little clue as to how that worked. Gato Barbieri. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Internet. Thank you, computer lady. I swear to God, Don, I have not gone back and listened, but I swear to God, Don Cherry just calls him Gato Barberi. I, I think that's what he does. But, you know, he was the boss at that time. So anyway, I'm Pat. I'm Mike. And we are returning. A great philosopher once called it getting back in the ring for another swing, I believe. And uh, we're going to really? try. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought it was, uh, what was it, Mark said, uh, history is tragedy the first time and farce the second. So we're, uh, we're like in that. farce land. We're in farce now. Yeah, this is definitely our, our, our uh, most farcical ever podcast. But we're going to be talking about several works by Gato or co-starring Gato. And then finishing up one with a saxophone player from Cuba, or as I call it, Cuba, <laughs> Paquito de Rivera just as a kind of make weight to, to add to this. And he's one of my favorite figures. Really, I, I learned about him in the 80s. So I assume, just like last time, except this time with the recorder on, we're going <laughs> to... Yeah, we're happy about this, guys. We're going to start with the Liberation Music Orchestra album released under Charlie Hayden's name, his first leadership date on ECM, 1969. And then we'll move on to Gatto's breakout work was a soundtrack, right? Mm-hmm. Hence the get the butter line that, that Mike is so fond of, uh, slipping in wherever he can. <laughs> Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> yes, it's the soundtrack to Last Tango in Paris. I still haven't seen it because I am a terrible human being and a bad cineast, whatever you, you know, I, I just, I don't watch enough film, you but don't. Mike knows it well. And uh, <laughs> I watched it again just for the, just for the damn podcast. Yes. And, and now it's indelibly on your memory. And as we have to go back, you have to relive the trauma one more time. So we'll we'll talk briefly about the last tango in Paris. Is that right? It's yes. Soundtrack, which which was a huge hit for Gatto and really brought him international prominence and kind of I think in a sense fueled the rest of his career. His name became big enough that he was able to record at will pretty much for the rest of his life. And then we'll look at a couple impulse dates he did, Latin America one and two, right after that soundtrack came out. After that period, he kind of goes into more M.O.R. disco waters for a while. And as I said last time, my memory as a young man thumbing through the record bins at the mall record store was there was always a copy of this album of Gatto wearing a hat, playing a tenor saxophone with a wall of flame behind him. And my jazz spidey sense always said, avoid that, Patrick, avoid it. I've never heard it. I, I, I think it's kind of a disco-fied I think uh, it album. has a lot of albums with titles like Caliente or, you know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, yeah, yeah. Something hot and or spicy and or sexy. But it turns out there's a lot of glossy production there to kind of yeah. soothe the tongues of the listening audience. This is, them up, as it were. There you go. And this stuff we're going to look at is pretty raw and uh, unprocessed, beginning with the first of four or five Liberation Music Orchestra albums led nominally, at least by Charlie Hayden. Thank you. 
and spaced out at intervals. I, I think this is 69, and it may be the next one is Battle of the Fallen from 1982 on ECM, which is a calmer affair. This is a pretty wild and woolly project. God is one of many voices on it. And we tend to think of, I think we both agreed last time, the mastermind of this is Carla Blay. So talk a little bit to the people once again, this time they can hear you, about your thoughts on Liberation Music Orchestra, the original on Impulse. So uh, as I said before, uh, this uh, Charlie Hayden's discography as a leader always slightly mystifies me. There's the Liberation Orchestra stuff, and there's the apparently interminable set of Montreal tapes or whatever they're called. And I, I just I get confused by his leader discography, which is pales in comparison to a sideman discography, which is fucking enormous. In any event, I have one or two of these Liberation Music Orchestras. I mean, this one for the podcast, but I have another one somewhere. I think he's done like four now, right? So I, I don't have Ballad of the Fall. I have one of the later ones. Anyway, m- my take when I heard this was, this is a Carla Blay record. It's not that you can't hear Charlie Hayden's bass here. You can, but it sounds like it's it's a Carla Blay big band album to me her fingerprints are all over the orchestrations here and it feels like she's using a lot of uh she has a lot of uh weapons as it were at her disposal here and they're being deployed in a fashion not unlike some of the the big band or larger ensemble stuff that she scores for herself in the 70s and 80s and it continues to do even today so it felt very much like a carla blay blay record to me and I would have been hard-pressed to say what was Hayden-esque about this. Indeed, I think I'd be hard-pressed to say, to define Hayden-esque apart from a plummy, robust tone and the ability to play inside or outside. So uh, I found this a, a kind of Carla Blay date, but with, as we talked about last time, a lot of folk melodies, a lot of folksy tunes worked into the mix here. The ostensible occasion for this is a kind of tribute to the communist side during the Spanish Civil War, and it incorporates sort of marching tunes or populist tunes, presumably from that era. I I wouldn't know for sure. but then integrates these into a kind of Carla Blay fancy mix with the various uh, featured players freaking out from time to time. So you have this kind of interesting folk mix with avant noise stuff going on. And I found it uh, pretty enjoyable for the most part. It was a bit of a surprise in some ways, but in other ways it felt mildly familiar because of the the Carla Blay influence. I take it this is a, a disc that you really like that really appeals to you because you have, I think, all of these Liberation Music Orchestra albums, well, don't you? I don't have not in our name. I, I do have Dreamkeeper, which I found as a kid very, very dull and never returned to, and Ballad of the Fallen, which I didn't quite get the point of as a younger man because of the folk elements because i was kind of expecting something that was quote-unquote more jazz oriented this one is almost dottist at times there's a Mm. wild streak of humor that carla has yeah it's a little reminiscent with slightly bigger forces of a genuine tong funeral which i might like even better but the difference being and i guess this is where charlie comes in instead of creating mostly her own materials made up about this mythological or invented concept of whatever a genuine Tong funeral would be. It doesn't have any actual cultural root. She just kind of came up with a concept. Here they are using not only folk tunes, but also occasionally snippets of actual folk music that they kind of stick in their yeah. music concrete style with their own playing. And some of it's kind of wildly humorous. There is a sense almost of a kind of a postmodern feel to some of it. 
along with the revolutionary fervor and the very serious emotions going on. And that disappears by Ballad of the Fallen. It's a much more somber record, a much more focused record. Is uh, she still part of the mix uh, by that point? Or she is, she... absolutely. I think okay. she's involved with every one of these because, yeah, Hayden is a political mover and shaker. He And she commented that at the time she was less focused on the political issues than he was. Mm. She was interested in the musical issues, but less so in the, the politics of it. Not that she was some kind of rampant conservative, but just she was not as politicized as Charlie. He's kind of hard to place, right? He, he, he likes duets. We know that. He obviously played in Old and New Dreams, which is kind of an updated version of the Ornette Quartet without Ornette. He did this weird series of projects with Ernie Watts that I think involved... I think snippets of recorded music from like the 40s or 50s. I, I've never heard any of them. The, the, the description of that project has never appealed to me. And as you say, he was just extensively documented at this Montreal Jazz Fest. And they kind of issued just every note he played, apparently. It was one of those celebrations of an artist where he appears in various configurations. So, yeah, it's a little hard to pin him down as a leader. But here he's, I think, at most co-leader. And I like the early Wild and Wooly Blay. And so I like this project. I like... The use of Gato as kind of a spice or a, you know, intermittently mm-hmm. featured player rather than someone who dominates every song. And I like her mix of materials. You know, five of these songs are two minutes or less. Yep. And then there's this epic 20-minute medley and then a couple of medium length between six and nine minutes. So it's a very varied program. She's not kind of tied into this idea of every jazz performance running six minutes, head, string of solos, head by any means. It's much more creative. I like it a lot. I think it's it's one of my favorite places that Gatto appears. Way, way back in the day, we did discuss Complete Communion, a Don Cherry-led date on Blue Note. This was back on episode 14, mm. and Gatto is featured extensively on that. And then, as I mentioned before, in episode 37, we discussed Alan Shorter's orgasm album, and, of course, you could call all of Gatto's leader dates, multiple orgasm, right? You know, because it's just, we'll get there in a minute, but there is a certain kind of template he follows once he's in charge. Here, he's not running the show, and I think the playing produced, just as it is in the Don Cherry days, is maybe a little more flexible and interesting. But anyway, I just highly recommend the session. It's it's not the place to go to find out the most about Gatto in the shortest amount of time, but I just think as a record, it's impressive. And I get the sense this particular ensemble, who, of course, the personnel changed a lot. I don't know that any of their other releases quite made the impact this first one on Impulse did. I feel like it's kind of the pinnacle and, and the rest, as I said, more digestible Battle of the Fallen, but to me, maybe a little bit less high energy, a little bit less interesting. Cool. All right, well... Moving on to this soundtrack that was a get huge the hit. Butter. Yes, get the butter. And uh, <laughs> when God is around, you always need some butter. I'm and, just going to uh, keep saying that in the in the background while you're talking. Get the kind, butter. Kind of a riff there, yeah. Get the butter. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put together a track for that. And just <laughs> as uh, Marie Schneider probably needed some at various points to, to get through her relationship with a very grief-ridden and distraught and middle-aged Marlon Brando, the listener sometimes probably needs some kind of lubricant to get through Gatto. That said, this this soundtrack is fairly polished, I guess. It, it, yeah. It's fairly melodic. It's it's not easy listening, but it, it's much more accessible in MOR than uh, his projects and Impulse would be. Right. You were really bothered, as I recall, by the repetition of 
melodic material over and over again because as a soundtrack they often come up with a motif and then no, work it through. I was I wasn't bothered by it. I was just I was pointing out. I, I was accepting of it. Um, no, I think this is the first or one of the first soundtracks that we've talked about. And soundtracks kind of operate under a different set of rules or you know different logic so you know they really are in this case sonic and emotional cues for what's happening on screen and if you watch the film you'll hear all of these cuts at one point or another so soundtracks often will have two or three at most four motifs or themes that you hear at various points in the film and in a film that's organic and fun and makes perfect sense, you sort of expect to hear the stormtrooper march when you see the guys with the white hats. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, do you know how they get those helmets on there? It's liberal <laughs> application of butter. That's how they I speak was going to say, get the butter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. So when you listen to a soundtrack, it's a little bit inauthentic or it's just a little weird because you're listening to what essentially are you know sound cues from different places in the film. And so you are going to hear really just two or three themes here repeated in a variety of ways. But the main themes are pretty recognizable and they're earworms. Once they get into your head, they're, they're hard to get out. So I wasn't complaining about it so much as pointing out that listening to a soundtrack straight through is kind of a weird thing to do because that music isn't necessarily meant to be listened to straight through unless you're doing the soundtrack of a musical. You know, if you're doing right. the soundtrack right. of a film... It's, so it's a weird thing to do, and, and uh, I often will do a mix for these podcasts so that everything gets randomized. And the idea of sort of sitting down and listening to Last Tango in Paris' soundtrack straight through, you, you can overdose a little bit on the themes pretty quickly, it seems to me. So, so you'd want to have them on a mix or you know rotate them around or something. You probably wouldn't listen to this straight through. Having said that, the orchestration works really well here with Gatto's saxophone and the orchestration strings are arranged and conducted by oliver nelson so there's another jazz connection in place here and there's a nice sort of objective correlative here that, that goes with the whole film this movie is about a guy having casual and sometimes rough certainly anonymous sex with a much younger woman as a way of processing his own grief. And the film is sometimes talked about as an erotic film, and I think that's a mistake. It's really a film about dealing with the death of a loved one, and it's full of anguish and pain. And Gatto's saxophone can be kind of equated <laughs> to the anguish and pain that the Brando character is feeling. And these moments that he has of intimacy or physical intimacy with Maria Schneider in this almost empty apartment apart from a bed can be regarded as the lush string orchestration his attempt to forget or cope with you know the pain that that he's suffering so Gatto's saxophone here i think works really nice in this in this context it's just a lot to take if you're going to listen to all of these numbers straight in a row you're going to hear the the theme a lot of times and that might get on your nerves and, and we are listening to an edition of this album that has a lot of bonus material, different yeah. versions of the tracks. And we do want to point out, you know, the original album as released did turn these cues into completed performances. It is not a series of, of abruptly stopping uh, right. sound. Some soundtracks literally are just pieces of the sound. I think this may have actually been re-recorded in the studio based on the material for the soundtrack. So there are performances. It's just in this expanded edition and I don't know how long the original soundtrack ran. It might have only been 35, 40 minutes. They've just included a, what remained were lots of different versions of these tunes. So by the time you're at the end of it, yeah, you've heard some of these melodies three or four or five times. And in this case, there's there's some improvisation, but this is not largely a jazz album per se, and it doesn't focus on extended soloing, extended variations on themes. It's, it's more statement of themes with some elaboration and Gatto's very distinctive tone. You know, we haven't talked about that yet, but it's kind of a throaty, rumbling sound, very thick.
Uh, lots of overtones in it. A little reminiscent of a calmer Albert Eiler, maybe, or a Pharaoh Sanders in that school, though his improvisations don't really follow the patterns those men's do. It's very distinctive sound. Some people describe it as sensual. I don't know. I don't know that that's what yeah, I think of when sure. I hear it. I'm not sure I'd find it that either. Uh, it, he has a kind of kind of a blatty, kind of right. almost flat sound to me. But yeah. Well, that we'll say more about that on Latino America in a minute. Right, and, and you know, the people will call it, and I think certainly appropriately vocalized. Yeah. But it, it's just it is the opposite of a thin, pure, focused tenor sound. It's like he's the anti. Out. He's the anti Desmond. Or anti Gats in this case. Or anti Sure, absolutely, sure. just completely removed from words. That words sound. you would let's let's make a list of words you wouldn't use to describe Gatos playing. Limpid. Dulcet. <laughs> No, soft. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, buttery. I don't know. I maybe, maybe not. Yeah, it's delicate. More like, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of yeah. He's and there are moments, uh, and we're gonna move now to yeah. probably critically his best received works. He made a series of at least four Latin America Latino albums. Latino America. Latino. Latino. Well, I see. It's interesting because I've seen. The individual oh, yeah. albums called Latin America 1 and 2, and then a uh, repackaging of 1 and 2 called Latino America. He, when he says it, does say Latino America. My and, bad. Yeah, my well, bad. I, it's interesting. He may have always wanted them to be called that, and originally when they released, they felt, well, that's a little off-putting to our Caucasian audience here. We want to <laughs> make it as accessible as possible to people that say Cuba with a Q. And so and now, and like, now, and now Impulse says, fuck Whitey, Latino! Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a little that culture has permeated a little bit more than it had. Uh, of course, the wall hasn't been built quite yet, so we'll see in ten years what it's like. Soon, keep Starting Gatto out. 2017. We must protect our women and children from Gatto. He's dead, but still, <laughs> you don't know. So anyway, he releases a series of albums, and we focus on one and two. I also listened to a bit of three, which is a little bit more traditional, not quite big band, but a little more straight ahead jazzy. And I've heard said but not actually listened to volume four which is apparently a very strong live album and then he moves to various labels before this he's recorded on esp and red baron but impulse is kind of the biggest label he gets right after his huge commercial bump and then after that i think he goes to like a&m more commercially focused places and makes more commercially focused music with some disco leanings and strings and that sort of thing and i i just haven't heard them i, I don't know what they're like i don't know whether they're good sleazy fun or just kind of annoying but <laughs> anyway, we're going to look at his most authentic stuff. So, so Latin American 1 and 2, uh, thoughts on those? I believe once upon a time, I used to get music recs. Uh, not only did I get them from the New York Times, I still get them occasionally from the New York Times, but I used to be a subscriber a million years ago to The Nation before Christopher Hitchens turned into an apologist for Bush. And they sometimes had very fine music reviews of jazz, which turned me on to some things that I never would have known about. So You Are Number Six by Don Byron and Witness by Dave Douglas, you know, albums that I sort of like. And I'm almost certain that I was turned on to this by a review uh, in The Nation. I'd have to look it up, but I think it was a review in The Nation that turned me on to this. And I had the disposable income at that time to just go out and get it. Like I read the review and, hmm, that sounds interesting. So I bought it and knew no, knew nothing about him. And it was the only thing I had for him, uh, had by him for quite a long time. And I just love it to death. Uh, it's a fantastic, I think, uh, two-album set and it really does kind of feature Gatto and all of his Gatto-iness. So what we have here basically on both of these albums is an enormous amount of percussion and uh, ethnic or indigenous percussion, if you will. So there's a whole bunch of instruments, the names of which I can't pronounce, from Brazil and Argentina. And the number of percussionists here is greater than the number of non-percussionists. So, you know, there's a bass player 
and then a couple of drummers and then four or five people playing a variety of different things and Gatto. And that's pretty much it. And he is going to play his plaintive, sometimes screechy riffs over the background uh, set in place by this uh, at times very elaborate and intricate and, and delicate at times percussion. And the typical mode on most of these songs is he sets up a riff and then he plays it louder and higher. Until he sort of runs out of keys and then he starts <laughs> then he starts screaming and, and egging the band on and it can be quite quite thrilling it can also be exhausting if you listen to both discs straight in a row you can just sort of have gato overload because every song is kind of not every but most of the songs are pitched at this kind of frenetic and we're going to go another key and we're going to go a little higher and we're, you know and he's into multiphonics and 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 screeching and then he's like ah and it's fun i mean he's obviously having a great deal of fun he's really enjoying himself and his sense of joy and pleasure in what he's doing is kind of infectious there's nothing you know terribly thoughtful about them these aren't intellectual exercises these are exercises of expression and passion there are a couple of milder numbers on the two discs that I think I compared to moments in a conference of the birds. But for the most part, this is overblowing and excitement and energy music. And to be taken, uh, to listen to a lot of Gatto in this mode in a row would be like just guzzling a bottle of hot sauce. I could imagine that for many listeners, your mileage may vary. For many listeners, uh, it would be nice to listen to a few of these numbers or to queue up Gatto once in a while, not as like a regular, make this your get out of bed in the morning music. Be, <laughs> you know, day after day, Latino America. Ah! And he does speak and shout. I mean, it's not yes. only the saxophone, but he will kind of yell encouragement and he then sometimes recites the names of latin american countries or latin american musical instruments yes he does so yeah uh, how did you like it did you enjoy it yeah i had a couple thoughts one is we talk about this when we think of these bands i'm almost reminded of the little instruments movement from the and now i'm going to forget their name what's the chicago avant-garde organization the uh, aacm Yes, that some of their concerts would involve little instruments, they call them. And, and this is kind of the South American variant of this. So sometimes mm. you do get delicate textures. You get interweaving lines, but not as you think of from Latin American jazz, where everything is, is interwoven and interlocking and kind of a wall of percussion. It it's, tends to be more transparent than that, a little bit more idiosyncratic, lighter and I, I like both. I, it's just that this is not the kind of polished, almost machine-tooled Latin American sound you might have experienced on, quote-unquote, more mainstream Latin American jazz records. Gato himself, he does tend to follow patterns in what he plays. Very much, you're right, you'll play a riff, do-da-do, and then a do-da-do, and it's, he keeps going up, as you said, the scale <laughs> and, until he explodes. Uh, <laughs> he does not do a lot of what we're familiar with is jazz improvisation in the sense of taking harmonic bed and elaborating on it, partially because the harmonic beds here are one or two chords at most. Right. And But even more than that, it is more incantatory rather than kind of a linear extrapolation of, of melody or creation or harmonic embroidery. He's just not really interested in that kind of thing. He's not playing in a mainstream jazz manner. An album that reminds me a little bit of Latin America 1 and 2 is Don Cherry's Eternal Rhythm. does not feature Gatto. And it's in a little bit different place, but it's Don's transitioning from free jazz into kind of world music. It's an odd recording. I don't know that I'm in love with it. And at one point, the side one, Sonny Sherrick appears. It's like, okay, what's he doing here? Well, he's doing Sonny things. He's like... 
but there's that sense of the background and the little instruments and the percussion, percussive interactions kind of almost being the foreground through parts of it, kind of slow burn developing things, but odder and more avant-garde. And until Don goes into the arms of multiculturalism, I was struck by how much jazzier, quote unquote, I feel like his take on things is as a solo artist than Gatto's. I mean, I, he comes out of bebop ultimately, Don Cherry does. Gatto, I just, I don't know. I don't know that much about his upbringing, but I, I do feel like he's somebody who, unlike Don, bebop is not his reference. I just, I don't think that he ever thinks in those terms and that kind of noty harmonic development of, of solo stuff. It, it's just a different tradition entirely that he's coming out of. And for a while, I guess, because he's in Don's orbit, we kind of think he's part of this jazz avant-garde, but he's really got a whole different project. And that's neither good nor bad. It's just something to be aware of. I think if you're listening to this music for the quote-unquote money shot of jazz, which is the developed solo, it's going to keep. It's going to feel a bit like Chinese food. It's like, well, that was another one. It was kind of nice, but but what happened there? Did I did I miss something? Did it? You just got to take it on its own terms, and they're, and they're valid enough terms. And sometimes I think the interest really is is more in the background than than, than Gatto. Yeah, there are no horns, there are no pianos, there are no electric guitars spinning out single lines. There's certainly some strummed acoustic. There's something that sounds like a donkey in pain on a couple of the tracks. I don't. <laughs> is that wind or percussion? I just can't decide. But it's a really just a, a braying sound that's even more abrasive. I think it's a uh, Volvo's Volvo. What do they call those things? The all Volvo's the things they play. At, I don't know. Yeah, I'm the things they play at soccer games or, or twist yeah. around at soccer games that make you want to die. I, I've I'm not not heard them, but. I've heard they're I think super. They're Volvo, Volvo. I'm looking it up now. Volvo. Volvo I'm gonna look it up. Yeah, we got to be careful where where we go with the pronunciation. Vuvuzela. Ah, there we go. Okay. Vuvuzela. Maybe that is that awful noise. Yeah, I can. A stadium of those would probably kill me. Now, if you listen to three, it's. I, I remember in some level, it's probably not as innovative or striking as one and two, but at the same time, if you're kind of from the jazz idiom, you kind of sign relief because it's like, ooh, three chords in that song. You know, there's it, a little more of the standard development, a little bit more like big band, a little bit more like solos you've heard in the jazz idiom. And then again, I've not heard four, but but one and two, are they're very much their own thing. What you think of a guy in, in a th- thick Latin accent reciting the names of all Latin American countries? I mean, it's kind of cool. It's kind of corny. <laughs> Uba. Argentina, except he's saying it in a way I can never reproduce. Or saying the names of the instruments. It's a little travelogy, you know, but it is probably the most interesting music he did aside from his work as a sideman. And then again, as I say, he was kind of known for later in life doing much more commercial music. And then I think he probably came back to the fold as he got older. And of course, one, you know, the reason we have decided to talk about him now is that he did pass away this year. So uh, this is a show kind of looking at some of his stuff. Mm. Uh, but we felt like we wanted one more work that was maybe a little bit different, kind of a palate cleanser. And so um, <laughs> I said, well, why not Paquito de Rivera? I was kind of struck because you said you'd never listened to the man. and for I him, never heard any. Yeah, he was kind of bread and butter growing up as, as a kid in the 80s. He was another artist that, that Dad tended to buy a lot of LPs by. He was another Columbia artist. He'd come from Cuba and uh, <laughs> very, very technically talented alto saxophone and clarinet player and very much in a kind of Latinized bebop mode. And really can just do anything he wants to on the horn. He often likes to go up into the altissimo, but he really treats it as just another register for the horn. So he'll play, quote unquote, illegal notes. But he's as fluid up there as he is really Wait, what, in the standard what's a, what's, a, what's an illegal note? That sounds interesting. Yeah, well, on the saxophone, you can go up to an F or if you've got a fancy new one, an F sharp above the staff. In other words, there are keys you can press that are meant to allow the saxophone to produce that note when blown. After that, let's say you want to play a G above the staff or an A above the staff or whatever, you're going to have to use false fingerings. In other words, you're, you're going to press the buttons in a way that 
Adolf Sachs never intended you to, and do weird things with your throat, and this will enable you to play song or play notes that are not in the saxophone's legal range, as it were. Hmm. And they're masters of it. David Sanborn is known for it. Believe it or not, Paul Desmond liked to experiment up there, and of course, his notes were always perfectly in tune and shaped, you know, you, you have to remind yourself he's actually gone up there. You know, at the end of any Saturday Night Live episode, when the uh, player yeah. starts yowling out notes, he's using the altissimo uh, in a kind of cliched, uh, atrophied way. And it is a technique for, for overblowing the horn in a way that produces these higher notes. So uh, Paquito's a master of it to a degree that it's, it's just part of his range. He, he doesn't just kind of, you know, use it for a freak effect. And he's an amazing clarinetist. And uh, this is uh, an album I've always felt was well-balanced, a lot of fun. I went back and was listening to some LPs from my childhood. One is Explosion, and that was Columbia pulling all the stops out, all sorts of synthesizer and electric bass. And I don't know, it's a fairly commercial-sounding album, but it's also got a huge amount of energy and fun to it. So, you know, he's been playing music for a long time now, but he they made a push in the 80s to make him another jazz star back when they were trying to do that in Columbia hmm. and uh he i think he left them a little earlier than Winton did and since then he's had a pretty decent career on out, uh, labels like Chesky so and he's still around right i mean he's yes, in his yes. 80s and still doing it yeah, he is a, a a fine player and just yeah somebody that you get the feeling he's not quite fair to call him the cuban phil woods but i, I maybe like him a little temperamentally better than phil but a little bit like that. He's very technically adept, excitable, and somebody who you're probably not going to turn to for the most profound wrenching ballads, though he will play ballads, but just somebody who's a lot of fun. So what do you think of Reunion? So I, I liked it. I did have, I have a best of Arturo Sandoval disc, uh, which is okay. I think I'd rather hear the discs themselves because the selections on this particular disc are all toward the flamboyant end. It's a little like too much marzipan or something, you know, a little too much Turkish delight. So I'd like to hear him like in an album, you know, where he stretches out a little bit. But um, uh, clearly these two guys have a kind of telepathic rapport, don't they? And reunion indeed it is. Their interplay is fantastic. And they're like, you know, like old hands at this thing. This is really polished stuff you have a sense of uh, a great deal of pleasure a great deal of joy here i don't have the sense that it's like hyper programmed it's just that these guys are really good at what they do they play well together the band behind them gives them all the support that they require to do the things they're going to do to play the kinds of speedy at times really speedy licks that they're going to play and like i said they have this kind of uh telepathy that comes from i guess people playing together for 20 or 30 years where they just kind of know how to give space to one another and when to how to interlock with one another you get a real sense of masters who are falling into very comfortable roles with one another uh, on this disc the byplay between them is particularly strong it seems to me and i agree with you i like paquito's he breasts out the clarinet how many times on this album? Once um, or twice? At least twice, yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he'll do that to varying degrees on most of his projects. And, yeah, he's really good on clarinet. You don't have a sense sometimes when people go to the clarinet and it's not their first horn. I, I think there's a diminishment or you can sense a diminishment of technique maybe, but not with him. It feels like he's as – it's not like a second horn. It's just another horn that he plays really, really well. You know, it's no sense of like slumming the way that like, you know, when Ornette plays trumpet, you want to. <laughs> well, you that, wanna, that's an extreme you wanna, case. You want to yeah. kill yourself. It's not yeah. like that at all. Yeah. You know, Phil will pull out the clarinet occasionally, Phil Woods, and he's, he's very solid at it. Lester Young toyed with a metal clarinet once or twice, and those are extremely moving performances. But yeah, he's not a master of it. And uh, who else is it? It tends to be. Often alto players, interestingly, I guess because it's a smaller embouchure and it transitions easier. I get the feeling that Paquito maybe went to conservatory in in Cuba. He's 
he's a trained guy. He's really, really good. And this is an album uh, we haven't given dates. It's been my fault, but this is from 1990 or 91. He defected in 80 to give you some idea. Right. So very much it's that same Reagan era of jazz uh, when Columbia is, is pushing as hard as it can. And there's a thought you can make money in the field that, that he gets promoted there. And this apparently is the first time he played with Sandoval since they played together in Cuba. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And this is more the Latin jazz you're familiar with, with interlocking congas and drums and just that yeah. sense of a beautifully woven tapestry of percussion that you kind of can rest back into that's percolating and entertaining and, and, and got a great momentum to it, but is slick isn't the right word, but just machine, you know, just polished, just very carefully done. That's it. Yeah, this is not produced in the way that some of his 80s work was in Columbia. It's not glossy. It's not slick. It's extremely well executed. But, right. you know, this is not a label trying to kind of discify him or, or elevatorize him or anything. It, it's it's fairly honestly recorded. It's just these guys are so amazing that that it sounds deeply rehearsed, I guess. And the other, the, you know. the other thing we said and that I, I neglected to mention, uh, I think I dropped Dexter Gordon. I name checked him when we were talking about it before that these guys are Latin players, but it's very much a hard bop, you know, bebop idiom where tons of quotes, t- Piquito mm-hmm. loves to quote and they come fast and furious, not quite at the level of Dexter Gordon, but tons of tons of quote, body and soul is full of them. So yeah, he does, he does that all the way through. And, and when they're playing at speed, it's especially impressive, but you get little licks of different things thrown in here. You get the sense that they do this all the time. They're having little in-jokes as they quote songs back and forth with one another as they play their solos in this really, really up-tempo Latin jazz stuff. Another interesting, completely irrelevant side note, my iTunes calls this Celtic. <laughs> okay. under, under genre, it says Celtic. So I just changed it to Latin. But I was like, really? Why? <laughs> Why does it call this Celtic? Well, you know, it's got always since like Cuba, Argentina. <laughs> Ireland, Scotland, Ireland. you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, they're the Orkneys. <laughs> it's very weird, Celtic. Right? Yeah, well, Dexter and Paquito both have a very detectable sense of humor. Yes. Uh, Dexter's got that incredible behind the beat lope and that very warm sound. And he just kind of everything, he gets into his zone of coolness. And Paquito's, it's like his heartbeat is twice as fast, right? He's, yeah. You know, more of a hummingbird kind of guy, but. You get the sense just from listening to him that he's a funny guy, that he's got a lot of energy, that he's very ebullient, you know. And I think that's as far as I know true. I've never met the man, but uh, yeah. So it's just it's it's a lot of fun, and this is one I feel like really balances. It, it's just a well-programmed album. I feel like it. There there are no kind of low points on it. it. It's not hectoring. It doesn't get too much into one bag. Uh, I would recommend Explosion from '85, which is much less tasteful, but it's just bursting with energy just it's vulgar at times but in a way that just you're still entertained it just a lot of fun going back to that particular record after probably not hearing it for 25 years i was like oh yes this is so much fun just very accomplished but the weird thing is is that columbia has released all sorts of box sets of, of their 70s fusion artists they you know stanley clark and george duke and you know and weather report your favorite but but as far as I know, Paquito's stuff on Columbia is largely just out of print at the moment. There, There is no easy way to, to access it other than, I, I assume, used LP bins. He's mm-hmm. just, they've, they've kind of let him disappear from the consciousness. And I, I kind of feel like it's time, maybe they, they feel like the 80s haven't quite made their bones yet. But, you know, while we're kind of pushing out that last generation of compact discs very cheaply and in mass releases for old people who still buy them, why not do Paquito? You've got, I, I think he did six to ten albums on Columbia in a short period of time. They aren't all brilliant, but neither were Stanley Clark's or George Duke's. You know, what the hell? Well, as you know, the Columbia executives listen carefully to every one of our podcasts. So I am sure we can look forward in the very near future to a Paquito box set coming out. We can only with hope. flames on it. Damn straight. Yeah, yeah. As much as Gatto, but in a different way. I, I'd say his flame is, well, he's he's excitable, but he tends to show his excitement in feats of bebop ebullience, yeah. right? I mean, it, it is a notier kind of playing. It is less incantatory. It's less building a riff over and over again. It's much more the hummingbird just going all over the place harmonically, just having a grand old time. 
not a hint of a tonality or avant-garde in his playing. I mean, he's very much a mainstream player with a Latin tinge, yep. but a lot of fun. And I, I guess I didn't mention when we were talking about Gatto that I, I probably recommend that jazz fans start with his Sideman appearances and along with his appearance on Complete Communion, there are a couple releases of live music from the Cafe Montmartre. I don't know how you say it. Montmartre. Uh, that sounds good. Oh, there we go. From 66. Two volumes of that with Don Cherry leading the band. At one point, this group, which includes a vibe player, which just works beautifully in this context. I, I love this. these albums. They're really, really good. And Gatto's there, of course. They break into A Taste of Honey for no apparent reason. It's like, yes, yes. You know, this is great. <laughs> and Don Cherry is like the avant-garde Dexter Gordon when he's announcing. He's a laid-back motherfucker. He's just kind of, yeah, this next uh, thing is... Uh... So, which is the only place I've ever heard Don Cherry's voice. Anyway, these are really delightful recordings. They're, they're very good sonic quality. You're not going to be hurting your ears to, to get this historic material. It, it sounds good. It's a great group in some ways, I think, better balanced than the Complete Communion group because you've got the cool vibes in there, too. Just delightful. A couple hours of great stuff. So, Gatto shines there. He shines on, I, I believe he also appears on a Genuine Tong funeral, which, as I raved about on my the Blay episode, I just think is, is, is a really fascinating work under Gary Burton's leadership. But again, Carla was kind of the mastermind. She, she tended to do this for a while, where she's kind of masterminding other people's projects. And then she got a big enough name, she was given the, the reins to do her own stuff. Well, that's our short now, very brisk tribute to Gatto. This tells you that what we need to do is lose more podcasts in the ether and then come back and we're all tight and shit. Like we got, like we rehearsed and stuff. Absolutely. Our uh, shit's tight. All right. Well, we made it through a nice, compact, tight, buttery episode. <laughs> um, anything on your mind, pop wise? The man with the foolish grin is keeping perfectly still, but nobody wants to know him, they can see that he's just a fool, and he never gives an answer. Well, last time I mentioned uh, that I had recently listened to the uh, Shirley Bassey singles album, which is just... (laughs) So much fun. So much fun. Also, another artist to be taken in small doses. You really don't need... <laughs> a little Shirley goes a long way. Um, it surely does, yes. For those who don't know, Shirley Bassey, singer from the 60s and 70s, was her heyday. Very big voice. You know her from the movie soundtrack of Goldfinger. She sings, you know, Goldfinger. And that pretty much is how she sings everything. Uh, including the Beatles covers, <laughs> The Fool on the Hill, just on and on and on. And I mentioned last time when I listened to this, it really did remind me, it really comes from a place where Scott Walker comes from. It's same kind of schmaltzy orchestrations, sort of chanson, show-busy tunes, pop tunes, given a kind of glitzy orchestration, except Scott Walker's just an altogether different kind of singer than Shirley Bassey. But I could totally imagine a Scott Walker cover of Goldfinger, you know? Um, (laughs) Or Diamonds Are Forever. In the time since we fucked up this first version, I have, as part of my ongoing project to catch the music I missed in my misspent youth. uh, I wasn't listening too much in the way of proper rock in the late 70s, early 80s, or even the early 70s. I have acquired a a two-disc, you'll be so proud of me, uh, a two-disc set of their self-titled album by Black Sabbath. Yes, disc two is outtakes and instrumental versions of songs, classic hits like The Wizard, 
and Wicked World <laughs> and a bit of Finger. And it's so, fucking awesome. So are the outtakes, do they have sophomoric silly lyrics as opposed to the, the accepted master <laughs> takes? One that have really philosophical ones. One of my favorites is the outtake for the wizard. Like you hear the producer saying something like, so what, I think he says something. So this one's called what, Frodo? Or he says something stupid like that. And you hear Ozzy say, no, it's the wizard. <laughs> I call him the Iron Man because he's made of iron. It's fucking hilarious. I, how how these guys like they're not even. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to bitch and moan too much here. But so I, I did have. I think I have Paranoid by Black Sabbath that I got a couple years ago. And whatever. So this is. The, I think this is the first album. And for some reason, I was able to get a two disc set. The second disc is studio outtakes and instrumental versions of these songs, <laughs> which I think is really funny. So anyway, so anyway, when you listen to the songs themselves, you know I've listened to a fair amount now of heavy metal, and this is heavy metal. Like this is you know Led Zeppelin lobotomized basically. And when you listen to it. It's I, it strikes me as so much more basic than I remembered. I had heard some of this stuff when I was an early teen, but it didn't register. And when you listen to it now with critical ears, you're like, that's really kind of simple, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's really basic, you know? I mean, there's like two kind of interlocking guitar parts. The bass player's basically playing like three notes repeatedly. And the most talented musician in the band is the drummer. And everyone else is just... It's just a lot of arpeggios. It's just, you know, interlocking guitar arpeggios. The guitar player was famous for, like, tuning his guitar lower or using different strings or something. So the sound of it was different. But, yeah, they're a great – their innovation is is, is a mood, right? I don't know that anyone else tried to create quite the sense of doom and adolescent – angst in the way and, they did and then it and now it's just and... so funny and when i hear oh, it yeah, yeah i crack up i mean it brings a smile to my face which is not really what's supposed to happen when you listen to black sabbath well spinal about... tap is basically a black sabbath documentary with some of the extreme adc stripped out right i mean it is i thought it was about led zeppelin whose song remains the same concert tour is is also funnier than the parody but it really is. It, it's definitely Black Sabbath has got to be kind of the bedrock of that whole thing. If you don't believe in evolution, people listen to heavy metal after Black Sabbath because clearly <laughs> such a thing exists. I mean, they're definitely just kind of crawling into the slime with their flipper legs. Ugh. But they found a a different kind of emotional space for music to create. And I don't know that anything quite that extreme in that particular area of mood had had been attempted, or at least I, I, I know. I just I really feel like the best way to describe it is Led Zeppelin after a lobotomy. Oh that's, yeah, that's really what's happened <laughs> here. Like, no one, no one in this band is as good as anyone in Led Zeppelin, and they're sort of doing the the they've picked up on the mists of Mordor element in Led Zeppelin. Said, I know, let's make an album about that. You know, and that's what they do. You know, so the whole album is it's like the Reader's Digest, Lord of the Rings. It is Lord it of the is. Rings. Yeah. I, I will say the drummer. I don't know. I don't know the names of anyone besides Ozzy. The drummer's pretty good, actually. The drummer. Uh, he's got some training. He's listened to some King Crimson. I don't know. He's he's not busy. He's not bad, but okay. I mean, he's no John Bonabit or whatever. But he's 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 pretty good. But yeah, the the guitarist. I'm like, really. It's just arpeggios. That's really all you're doing. That's all the riffs are. It's just constant. But they're thought, doomy arpeggios. They're, they're doomy arpeggios. We thought Edge invented arpeggios, but no, it was right. <laughs> done a long time ago. I was like, wow, it's this is really kind of basic, and it's funny. It's just so funny. I mean, I try and I, I try and imagine what it would be like to be twelve and really listening to this, and I can't get into that headspace. I just can't. Right, right, yeah. You can't if you come too late to them. It's just it's it's difficult to kind of. Have their have them find their way into your heart. It's, it's just... what this is all leading towards is you know an acquisition of a number of albums by Kiss and my own foray into facial makeup. But that's, okay, that's still a that's still a few visits to the record store away. Thank your lucky we'll, stars, we'll, people, that we don't do a video podcast for so many we'll, reasons. But we'll, we'll we'll get there. I can't wait to do the Peter Chris makeup. That'll be a lot of fun. Okay, yeah. Hey Beth, <laughs> he misses Beth. We lived through the seventies. I was an alienated little fucker on the bus. I'm like, why? I don't. Who's suck? Kiss sucks, man. It's like, shut up, <laughs> shut up, shut up. So, yeah, for my stuff, real briefly, I talked uh, about 
Ella Fitzgerald's album on Verve, Like Someone in Love. It's uh, which is not pop. <clears throat> well, it is. It really is. I mean, when you listen to this album, if you ask yourself, where is the jazz? You're going to find almost none. She is singing interpretively pop songs with a, a delightful accompaniment. It's just the point is her voice is so fucking incredible. It's just a delight from beginning to end. But but it, these kind of albums tend to be denigrated because they're not showing her jazz side at all to speak of. But yet, if you're just into pop singing, man, she's just so good. And uh, in contrast, I got one with Joe Pass from her later years, Easy Living. And I just decided I don't know that I want to listen to Ella after her peak. She's a kind of artist you just want to hear at that absolute peak of mastery. I, I don't know that you get bonus for her in her old age. It, it's She just loses a few steps, and I don't know there's something to kind of make up for that. It, she's not like a Billie Holiday, but I really like that record. We listened to Joe Jackson's Big World, and the political time for that album may be returning. It's a very angry album made at the beginning of the Reagan era. His lyrics are blunt, but I think he puts the songs together pretty well on that one. And then his bonus content, which had not been available before this massive cock-up, went up to the Jazz Kitchen for the 9.30 show. I was able to listen to Eddie Henderson, the trumpet player. I don't know, have you ever listened to Eddie Henderson? Yeah, yeah. As they said, famed jazz trumpeter, which is a warning sign, right? They have to explain that to people. And I, I think this concert was kind of emblematic of their worry and or his worry that people don't actually know who Eddie Henderson is. But he appeared with a local group, including... Rob Dixon on saxophones. And I've talked about Rob before. He is a fixture of the Indianapolis scene. He plays the Chatterbox Lounge, I believe, Tuesdays. Uh, Sophie plays them Wednesdays. And he appears a lot at the Jazz Kitchen. He's a very fine saxophone player. And Steve Alley on piano, who is probably the most interesting soloist of the night. And again, uh, local players Nick Tucker and Steve Hewton on bass and drums. Anyway, Eddie Henderson, probably best known for playing with Herbie Hancock in some of his electric bands. And then he made some albums under his own name on Blue Note that were also kind of electrified, funky, spacey albums. I had one by him called Heritage, which is probably one of the more commercial ones, but Sunburst and yeah. I want to say Explorations. Uh, th- there are a couple there that are fairly, if you're into Herbie Hancock before the Headhunters, before the funk gets a little bit more explicit. And the structures get simpler. Eddie's an important component of that and carries on for a while. And then he kind of disappears from the scene. He is a practicing psychiatrist, I think. Wow. And then he returns in the 90s and does some straight-ahead albums, including Dark Shadows, the one I've got, which is a very fine album with a very thoughtfully curated list of tunes, stuff by Wayne Shorter and Joe Henderson, just a lot of interesting, lesser-known jazz tunes on that album, along with a couple standards. But here it is, 2015 to 2016, and he comes and he's in good shape. I don't—I I have to look up his age. I assume he's in the 70s. Trim guy, very short, bald. He's been bald forever. And his, his trumpet playing is in good shape. But what he does is mostly mid-50s Miles Davis. Hmm. He plays with a mute on. And when Rob Dixon solos, he is just, he is playing Coltrane from that era precisely that era you know he's not playing coltrane from love supreme era he's playing coltrane from like 57 and uh, they do a couple tunes from that era flawlessly i mean the band's really good but the only one who sounds a little bit idiosyncratic is the piano player and eddie sits down when rob's soloing and the piano player is soloing but he might play a few notes from there so he's clearly he's pacing himself i mean he's aware that he doesn't want to blow non-stop for an hour but he's in good shape uh his, his playing is strong it's just bizarrely in this well-known idiom of a long dead trumpet player who he never really, if he emulated anybody, it was Miles Davis circa bitches brew maybe, but not, not the 50 stuff. So I, I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, it, it, I don't know what to make of an artist, I guess in a sense, he probably felt like, well, I can't play Eddie Henderson music because nobody knows what that is. 
So I'm going to play this stuff. Uh, the one tune that really catches fire, they did a Woody Shaw tune. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit different idiom, and everybody kind of perked up. And I just thought, once again, Woody Shaw is a fucking good composer. I really like his stuff. Yeah, I've got a bunch of songs that are really standards. Yeah, just a delightful tune. And it's it even has this little prologue to it, and then the main tune comes out. And it's the one tune that Dixon gets out of music stand and is looking at music on. So clearly it's the one he did not know just by heart. Right. Whereas if he's doing Autumn Leaves... Or doing all blues or whatever it was, or so what, one of the two. It, 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 you know, he's, he's just internalized those. So I, I left. It wasn't quite the end of the set. I stayed for maybe 70 minutes. I, I think they may have had one more tune to go. But I think it was when he uncorked Autumn Leaves. And I'm like, okay, well, it's going to be midnight before I get home anyway. And I just, as well as they're doing this stuff, and they were doing it very well. Rob's a very fine player. And Mr. Henderson is still in great shape. I mean, I was impressed. I mean, I, I don't know that he could lead a band by himself for an hour probably physically that'd be a bit much for him just noting how much he paced himself and sat but his soloing was very very good but it was just bizarre i mean it was more so than wenton who we discussed at length a couple episodes back it was somebody just taking on the mantle of miles and just doing it right i i don't know what to make of that i I don't know whether my reaction was a little too strong to that it just it it just i don't know whether whether you'd be disturbed by something like that where this player who i feel like's got his own history is just kind of ignoring it and recreating somebody else's that said probably it makes more commercial sense for him to do that it may not have been his choice that is to say it seems doubtful that he could bust out the charts from sunburst and right, have yeah. those kids pick him up in you know an afternoon so it's like let's do you guys know you guys know autumn leaves? Yes. You guys know this? You guys know that? Yes. So maybe that's what you do with a pickup band. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a very I, I accomplished know. one, but but that, that, exactly, that may be an explanation for it. I guess what I felt like bothered me about it was you could do that with a pickup band with a less loaded repertoire. And he at one me- moment said something about a tribute to Miles Davis or something, but I, in other words, he wasn't just pulling plums out of the gas or whatever. He was really explicitly doing a Miles thing for over half of the gig. It was tunes associated with Miles played exactly in the style Miles played them. Right. Harmon mute for when Miles would use a Harmon mute, this, that sort of thing. So, yeah, but you're right. And now these guys... My guess is, and, and again, the one exception they did bring out the music stand for was this uh, beautiful uh, Woody Shaw tune. Anyway, it was just a, an odd experience. I mean, it was, I was glad to see him. I was glad to get a chance to do it. He's a, certainly a performer I've never seen. But it was this weird sense that his history is, is gone, and in a sense, he's helping erase it or being forced to help erase it. It's like, it was just kind of made me a little sad. And of course, I don't know that he's done anything with that mode since the 70s. It may be that he himself feels like, as Wenton did, that it was a dead end and he didn't want to return to it. But it would have been a lot more interesting to me if, if he was going to pick something, if he just tried to do some of those, you know, maybe get the electric keyboard out or whatever and, and just do stuff that, uh, I don't I don't know, what was not so much in the idiom of another guy. But it was neat to see him. And that concludes episode 93 of the Jazz Bastard podcast. As always, you can reach us at pat at jazzbastard.com and mike at jazzbastard.com. You can download the podcast from www.jazzbastard.com or from iTunes. We have a Facebook page, so you can follow us on Facebook and like us. Whatever that means, I don't understand because I'm a middle-aged man. We do try to post daily. Enjoy. A couple listeners have been requesting a spreadsheet of all of our podcasts, and we have created one that lists them by podcast number, artist, album title, label, and year. If you'd like it, just look on our Facebook page. It's downloadable from there. We will try to update it on a regular basis. Tune in next time as we discuss some LPs by Al Haig, the George Adams Don Pullen Ensemble, Art Farmer, and Kenny Wheeler. Until then, remember... It's not nice to fool Mother Nature.
you know, in the film, when he gets the butter, it's not even melted. You can sort of see it flake <laughs> off in his hands. So it needs it needs to it needs to melt in his hands and where he actually places it as well. And it just seems to me, if you're gonna have unmelted butter, you should just go for like margarine or cooking oil because unmelted butter in that circumstance is probably not gonna feel good being you know rubbed back and forth over where he wants to put it. I'm just talking, you know. I'm just filling space here. they must have done was they had the butter in a refrigerator and they brought it out and you can tell it hasn't been under the lights very long because it, he's like sitting there eating bread on the floor putting butter on it or no no he's eating bread and he tells her to get the butter but the butter is like on the floor when he takes it and like i said it kind of flakes off in his hand before he puts it uh, okay. this is all you know before he uh, places it down below but it's like flaky it's not soft and if it had been out under the lights of the cameras for a good 15 minutes it would have been a nice softened butter stick you're so naive they always use stunt butter for those it's shows. stunt butter it's, it's, not, it's not the name butter it's a stunt butter it's a stunt butter <laughs> <laughs>